Good afternoon and welcome to our podcast. We are the ADHD Divas and we are chatting about all things ADHD, feminism, diagnosis, medication. Um, welcome to our podcast. We do hope you enjoy and give us some feedback. So um, I'm Louise. I'm 40, just in February. Um, you look at Louise. Obviously, I don't look at it. Um, and I suppose one of the reasons, well, the main reason we've been talking about doing this for months and months yeah. is because of our mental health. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about overstimulation. Shush, Jack. Bless him. Wants to join in. So, yeah, one of the reasons, isn't it, that we've been talking about this for so long is because of our mental health. Um, And I don't think it's any secret if you look at the title of the podcast that we both have ADHD. But interestingly, we, um, we... talked about doing this well before we either of us got diagnosed because as we know um comorbidly um you know we experience other mental health problems such as depression anxiety um for me in particular um and I know you have as well Laura so um I think it's important just in my introduction to mention those things that you know I've probably had such difficulties with my mental health my whole life really um and then adding into the mixture that typical becoming a mother so I had my first child um when I was 29 I was just a few weeks shy of my 30th birthday didn't spend it quite how I anticipated I might mm-hmm. I had a newborn baby and um and that obviously brings in lots of other components to your mental health which we all I think know about and there's such a lovely space out there where um, women particularly are being really open and honest about their experiences of motherhood and the impact that can have on us and our well-being. Um, so that, in, that is in a nutshell my kind of my background but professionally I am interestingly a mental health nurse um, I've always been a mental health nurse, as in I've never done any other job really since um, qualifying, which was when I was 21. Um, Did you want to go into mental health nursing? Is it because of your own mental health? or That's that's an interesting question because I didn't initially go into mental health nursing. I initially went into general nursing. It was if I look back now I think there were so many opportunities missed um for me and like so many other people as well whereby um you know I was just encouraged to do something that was safe you'll always have a job which is true um you'll always have a job go into nursing and I absolutely hated it Laura oh my god I, I couldn't do it I couldn't do general nursing it I just didn't like it at all for lots of different reasons and I think no matter what denomination of nursing you are and you could probably add midwifery onto this as well I think you have to be a certain type of person to do each kind of branch of nursing and was that uh, that, as a student though that you hated it as a student so I I thankfully um I enjoyed my mental health placement because we got to sit around and kind of talk about our feelings and drink tea. There was much more to it than that, but I really enjoyed it. And um, luckily I managed to change halfway through into specialising into mental health rather than carrying on with my general nursing. Mm. Um, And I remember being a student and one of the nurses on, on one of my placements saying, everybody who goes into mental health nursing is going in to find out more about themselves or people around them. And although it was quite a flippant comment, I think that's probably on reflection quite true. If I was to think of myself and if I think of some of you know my friends who were in that area as well. Um, but actually, it, it's given, obviously, doing this job gives you 
a certain element of insight, but it also gives you a certain element of isolation as well, I think. And when I say that, I mean, when you're struggling with your mental health, who do you go to? You go to your GP, your GP would refer you to somebody like me or my colleagues or a team I'm working in. And I'm looking at what we do and I'm thinking, well, what are they going to do to help me? I don't know what's going to help. And I think that's where the isolation comes in, where you feel a real sense of helplessness, but also quite hopeless as well when you're struggling with your mental health. Um, Because when you're in that, when you're in the depths of despair, you do want someone to come and just scoop you up. Mm. I'm not saying that that's particularly healthy for recovery on a continuous basis, but I think when you're in a crisis, it's sometimes you just want someone to take over, right? Just someone to, we just, just take control of things for me. And I've never felt, probably because of my personality as well, but I've never felt that that's been the case for me. And that I find quite isolating. Mm. Um, so if I was to go back to just introducing myself, <laughs> I am... Um, Typical ADHD. <laughs> Go off on a tangent. You did ask me a question, Laura. Fair, fair enough, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, and I, I would never, ever, ever have considered myself as having ADHD, as you well know. Never in a million years. And I, I thought I had a good working knowledge of the condition um, because I, I come across it in work, you know, occasionally and if I'm being honest when I've assessed people with other mental health problems and you know I'm saying do you have any other health conditions and somebody might say ADHD I kind of dismiss it I I was kind of thinking I I don't think I don't really know what that means I don't think maybe just need to stop eating sugar or something I mean I wasn't outwardly judgmental Mm. but I didn't I don't think I gave it enough time and I think that's probably true of lots of us healthcare professionals absolutely and as a midwife I've definitely been guilty of that when you know I'm meeting a patient for the first time reviewing their the medical background section of their notes and if it says ADHD or autism there's probably an element of lack of awareness about the depth of the condition certainly in that profession Um, and I probably would have thought well that's not relevant to me because what I was looking for really is like physical medical conditions that might impact you know the way that you have your baby or things extra things that we need to consider but since being diagnosed with ADHD and looking at it from a different lens actually all those kind of sensory issues the way that you process pain the way that we communicate it's actually you know they're very valid things that health professionals need to look at um through a different lens because actually that can massively impact a person's experience of you know that episode of care so um I think that that in itself um it helps to justify why we wanted to do this podcast Um, I think just to bring some element of awareness um, around about people who are in the healthcare profession to be you know mindful of and just bring awareness to neurodiversity. It's it's interesting it feels like a whole kind of new book has opened up and it almost feels like I was going to say I can see things clearly but that's probably the medication um, <laughs> um, that a lot of struggles probably can be due to those um, other conditions such as ADHD or autism and you're right and just being a bit dismissive of those things and so when you suggested to me that I I don't think you suggested did you I think you just plain out flat out diagnosed me right there and then. Well, just to give the listeners a bit of background. <laughs> um, so my name's Laura, I'm a midwife and I have also recently been diagnosed with ADHD. Louise and I actually first met when she was a patient of mine when she was having her youngest child, little Jack. Um, and we did, we got on really well and we chatted and chatted 
but she then came back into my life as a professional where she took up a post as the perinatal mental health nurse um, where I worked and we and I had a specialist interest in perinatal mental health so um, we sort of just became friends from there but I think we've really gravitated towards each other because as it turns out we both have ADHD but we've always just been able to have really deep conversations about things we share a lot of the same um, I suppose beliefs and values um, but also I think we just hold space for each other and yeah, we can yeah. be ourselves you know without un like completely unapologetically um, where maybe I'm hyper fo focusing on something and I tend to try and bring Louise on that journey saying like oh wouldn't this be a really good idea if we could just buy a double-decker bus off eBay and do it up and live in it and travel the world etc etc um, so after my assessment and my diagnosis with ADHD I was going over to visit Louise and take my daughter to Crufts for that weekend so we were staying with Louise and her lovely husband Peter and her children um, and I told her about my diagnosis and I said Louise I think you've got ADHD because if I've got it you're worse than me so you've definitely <laughs> got it as well. And I think that's how the conversation went. That is how the conversation went. And I'm so grateful. Flabbergasted. What? Flabbergasted. Um, but I will honestly, I know this sounds really cheesy and maybe a bit overly emotional, but I will always be so grateful. And I, I'm not saying that flippantly. Honestly, the amount of times I say to Peter, if Laura hadn't said that, you know, and, and I'm still really, I, I suppose we both are, but I'm even earlier on in my kind of recovery and treatment and things. Um, I just completely lost my train of thought. It happens to me all the time. What was I saying? What was I going on about? Anyway, yeah, you are wonderful, obviously. And I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm just, I'm really grateful. And um. And I'm glad that I think now, we, now we've both got some treatment. We've actually been able to start this podcast. So I think that's quite telling, isn't it? Um, and I think it would be a good, I think maybe if you go into a bit of your background as well now, Laura, because you've got a really interesting history, I think. I could listen to you all day, actually. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? You couldn't listen to yourself all day. You kind of get sick of the sound of your own voice and hate listening to yourself back. A lovely voice you're so interesting um yeah so i am 37 years old and at the beginning of this year um i suppose i was experiencing what we refer to as burnout um i have been a midwife for 10 years and i before that just to give you a bit of a, a sort of overall background um, when I was growing up, there was me, my sister and my mum. My parents got divorced when I was very young. Um, we lived with my gran for a period of time and she was our other parent, so to speak. Um, we, were, we were both very, very close to my gran. Um, we, when I left, art was my kind of um, subject at school. It was a kind of security thing. I knew that I was good at it. Um, I had a really good relationship with my art teacher who encouraged me to go to art school um, to study international product design, but I absolutely hated it. It was not my niche. Did you? years old, um, from a single parent family. We had no money. Everyone else in the course, it was their second degree. They all had, you know, um, a lodge up in the Alps and they would go skiing of a weekend in the snow and they would say oh, what did you do at the weekend Laura and I'd like mm, not much I'm on the bus stop and they would say oh we were away skiing in the Alps have you ever been skiing before Laura and I said I once in the dry ski slope in your mills but that <laughs> <laughs> was through the school I've never been in the skiing in the snow um so I just felt as if I never really had a place there they weren't my people um <laughs> And I think it was a massive transition going from, you know, having your art teacher there who you're really close to, he was your biggest supporter, um, you know, helped you as much as he possibly could to that kind of level of independent study, independent living. Mm. Um, you know, it just all became a little bit overwhelming. And after second year, I dropped out because I just wasn't having the best time. 
So did you move away from home to go to art school? The second year I did, yeah. Okay. So the first year I was travelling up and down and that in itself, you know, a lot of everyone else was staying up there and you were kind of left out because you were getting the bus home and, you know, they were all going to nights out and freshers week and yeah. different socials that come along with going to university. Yeah. Um, so I moved back home after the second year and kind of, I had a bit of a rotten boyfriend. I ended up moving in with him. I don't know why that ever was a good idea, but um, he would sometimes go out on a Friday and not come home till a Tuesday, <laughs> by which time I would have been staying at my mum's, you know, because I just didn't like staying by myself. And then by the time I would come back on the Tuesday, he had to put all my clothes in black bin bags. It was just a kind of cyclical thing that was happening. Um, And during that time, I... So I had been studying international product design at art school um, and we had to do languages associated with that. So I was studying French and Spanish and some Italian as well. Um, and I thought, oh, actually, I really like the languages. So I think I'll just go back to college and um, I'll get some hires in um, French and Spanish and Italian. Um, hires? Are they like A-levels? Yeah, or, a bit like, yeah. yeah. yeah, but yeah. Kind of, I think they're mid-range between GCSE and A-levels. Okay. Sure yeah. what they call them now, but they've changed them. So, I mean, I left school with five hires and three advanced hires. Um, oh, wow. But I just felt the need to go back and, you know, pursue this newfound love of languages. Mm. Um, so I was working in O2 at the time, which was a great job. It was very sociable. I was earning some money. Um, went to college, got my hires in French, Spanish and Italian. Wow. And then thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go to university and I'll study French and Hispanic studies. Why? <laughs> what? Um, but I had a really good relationship with the um like the course leader at college. Um she was yeah, very yeah. supportive, you know, like she was like, Yeah, absolutely, you know, you're gifted at this, go ahead, do it, go to university. So I was accepted, went ahead, started university studying um, at the uh, Glasgow University in Scotland. Um, started studying French and Hispanic studies and I lasted about six weeks. Um, every single class was presented in French and Spanish. Um, oh, wow. Now, I wasn't fluent. I passed the exams. I got A's in, in them, but I was by no means... So the classes were taught through the medium of those languages, exactly, yeah. English, and then bringing in the second the second language. Oh, yeah. crazy! So that was a bit overwhelming. <laughs> you know, Would be, yeah. And could not follow what was happening at all. So I dropped out of that as well. Um, and then I was working full time for O2, um, which was great. I had a lot of, you know, friends. There was loads of different social things, loads of bonuses, whatever. Um, in the meantime, kind of after I left the rotten boyfriend, um, I then met up with a boyfriend that I had had a couple of years previous. That's my now husband, John Spence, who I met when I was 15. Um, oh. The love of my life. Um, so we then started going back out together and um, I fell pregnant with Jodie, my eldest daughter, when I was 23. Um she was born in the May and then I turned 24 in the July so it's quite a I mean yeah there are younger parents but essentially I was quite a young we were quite young parents um and after I had the baby the midwife that I had her name was Elaine McHattie and I just thought she was fabulous I was absolutely petrified I had done no preparation no antenatal classes not much reading round about it I was absolutely terrified I mean that was I don't think that I was really quite prepared for parenting at all. Um, but when I went in in labour, I found the support that I got from Elaine McHattie was outstanding. She empowered me. She reassured me. I felt so safe and so secure. Mm. Um, and and actually, she was the inspiration behind me going to want to study midwifery. Um it's, it was never about the babies for me. Um, it was always about empowering women. women yeah. It was kind of speaking to that um, that kind of inner feminist in me that I actually probably never really knew that I had at that point, but I was just going with my gut feeling. Um, so I applied to do midwifery then. <laughs> <Obviously>, <laughs> you know, third time lucky at university. Um, 
And I remember the feedback from some of my family. I remember my gran was furious um, because she said, you can't go and give up a really good full-time job. You've got a mortgage What's to pay, you've got a child to feed. Um, oh. And I, I mean, to be fair, it was quite a risk to take, you know, given the kind of family circumstances. Um, I had applied to go to university, study midwifery, and I got a knockback, you know, a straight knockback, never even asked me to go for an interview um, yeah. until two weeks before the course was due to start. And they rang me on the telephone to say they had a couple of people who had dropped out. Um, did I want to come up for an interview? And I said, absolutely. So then they offered me a place on the course, which was fabulous. I almost nearly wasn't a midwife. Um Anyway, so here, here I am today, 37 years old. I've now got three children. Um, I have always been troubled by my mental health since about the age of 14. I've been on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. Um, I've just always felt a little bit on the outside. Um, yeah. I think I look back and see where I've masked into situations with friends, boyfriends, work colleagues. And I can be whoever I need to be at that time yeah. to be like. To not draw attention to you know those kind of darker thoughts maybe that I've got about myself or that those you know the things that you worry about the things that makes you anxious God did I just say that out loud and then you really overanalyze it and just so conscious about those types of things that it drives you mad um but I think over the past 18 months um, it's really started coming to a head and I don't know why that is but I've obviously at some point ran out of the coping strategies that I had put in place for myself that I didn't know I was doing um, but we're here in the Channel Islands we don't have any family um, and I think maybe post-Covid you know that kind of you're not actually allowed to travel to go and see your family or they're not, they're not allowed to come and see you I think potentially that's contributed to poor mental health um, our daughter Jodie also is neurodivergent and she's a teenager and that is just a catastrophic combination um, and so it's very difficult to manage and so in terms of work as well obviously midwifery is quite a, an emotional job most of the time things go really well but when they don't I really feel that um, you know I, I'm a very empathetic person as a lot of people with ADHD are um, so are a lot of neurotypical people, but yeah. um, I think I think people with ADHD tend to really absorb the feelings of those people around them. So you're very much aware of, um, you know, the vibe in the room or whatever. Um, but I certainly take on the emotions of the people that I'm looking after. Um, and I've never been very good at looking after my own well-being. And so eventually these things just come to a head. And I have recently just taken the decision to leave midwifery. Um, I've been off since January and I've resigned my position, which makes me really sad. It's been a bit of an emotional journey to reach this point. But um, I've been describing it almost as a bit of a breakup, you know, like um, kind of ripping the bandaid off, going cold turkey, not really socialising that much with people outside of work or really contacting them it's as if I'm just trying to like really take my space to find out who the real Laura is because I don't really know who that is I think midwifery gave me a very strong identity um, and I kind of lived and breathed those values because I've spent a lot of my life masking and not really knowing um, who I am but when I was diagnosed with ADHD it was like a massive light bulb moment it was like meeting myself for the first time and I'm really just trying to get to know myself um and just I putting putting myself first now, looking after my own well-being, doing things that you know, things that fit around how I want my life to be. Um, yeah, so I suppose that's it. I feel as if someone's given me a handbook. When you get the label of having ADHD, I feel as if simultaneously there's you know there's so much help out there that I feel as if now I've got the handbook and I'm able to live by that. So I don't need to think about it myself. But we know the strategy. I know the strategies now, and I've got the medication. Um, and yeah, I just I feel like a new woman. I feel content. I feel peaceful. I feel happy. Um, things are ticking along. Yeah, really well. I would say that's um, interesting because I was I was about to to say to you or ask you 
and I know we speak to each other quite regularly, but um, I think you are a master at masking. Um, mm. That you could even fall a mental health nurse yeah. sometimes. Um, I'm wondering what the kind of low mood and the anxiety, how actually ha has that been very different since your diagnosis and starting ADHD treatment? Yes, I would say it was quite a rocky road to begin with. Mm. So I'm on the highest dose of sertraline and I'm also on the highest dose of propranolol for um, anxiety and depression. Um, if I compare it to, I mean, po postnatally, I never had the best experience with a third child and I had quite bad postnatal depression to the point where I told my husband he had to come home from the golf because if he didn't come home, then he was going to find me swinging in the garage because I was planning to take my oh. own life. I just yes. was at a really, really low point. And it was never, you know, it wasn't the baby, it was the other children. I could manage the baby. I knew what to do with the baby, but it was the two and a half year old that I had. And then it was, you know, the, yeah. um, the seven year old that has ADHD and autism and just everything was completely overwhelming. And I think a lot of women find that, that um, postnatal kind of depression is the catalyst for further diagnosis of other, um, you know, neurological okay um, yeah. i've read a little bit around it and i think a lot of women have reached the point of um you know postnatally after having children you're kind of running out of strategies and therefore you kind of identify that mm. it's something more than postnatal depression um if i compare it to now when i initially started the medication i just i felt so lost i was adapting to the the diagnosis itself um, and then obviously starting new medication, I still felt a bit emotionally dysregulated. Mm -hmm. um, but now that I understand we're kind of six months down the line, now that I understand more about the condition, I understand how that applies to my life. Um, I mean, I don't understand it fully yet. And I still reflect back on all the experiences that I've had through my whole life. And I can see now where there would have been opportunities you know, to have picked it up. But as, as we know, and we talk about very often, um, it's that inequity of women. Um, females tend to present differently with ADHD than males do. Um, and we know that the diagnostic criteria is set up for a male-based um, assessment because all the research revolves around white male children. Um, you know, and I don't present the same as, yeah. you know, the eight-year-old boy that's um, messing around in the classroom or whatever. Disruptive. I mean, they're, they're polar opposites, aren't they? Um, so yeah, still, I, I mean, there's there's been a lot of light bulb moments. There's been a lot of kind of, oh, I get it now. I, I remember actually just as a bit of a side note. Sorry to interrupt you, Louise. Um, okay. I remember while I was at art school. Um, I, I remember after writing the first kind of academic piece. Um, at that level it was all about the history of art it was really a, a really dry boring subject I found mm. um, I put it off and put it off and put it off and I wrote it the day before um, We I stayed up all night and then handed it in and I got a very very like scrape to pass it was so bad oh I thought you were going to say you got the best mark you've ever got no no no, no. Um, following on from that essay having a meeting with my um, kind of academic tutor they sent me for a dyslexia test oh really mm. so I went to wherever you go for that and I was thinking oh yes let me have dyslexia because you get a free laptop then you start getting you know all, <laughs> all the equipment anyway turns out I never had dyslexia but we had a conversation where the assessor said to me you don't have dyslexia, but you do have very slow processing ability. Um, so that uh, at that time, that would have been um, 2002, 2003-ish. Um, that would have been an opportunity to refer me then for further assessment. However, um, it was only really recognised as a condition that was, um, you know, accessible in adulthood from 2008. Um, not to mention, I think the first um, randomised control trial wasn't until 2002 for females. Um, so right, it's interesting, although I get a little bit angry and think 
gosh, look at all those missed opportunities. And, you know, I might have been able to finish art school had it just been diagnosed and I had the right support in place. But actually, people can be forgiven because they didn't know. You know, Absolutely. you don't know. No, how, you, how, how you And I think I had a similar experience when I was, um, my my mum had thankfully kept a lot of my school reports. And so she gave them to me so I could give them to my um the team who were assessing me and reading through them I had similar thoughts just this kind of almost sadness for this girl who has clearly got no interest in things but a little bit lost as well you know I, I was remembering these subjects when I was reading about them and I was thinking I just didn't and maybe a lot of that is just being a you know a young adult or a teenager but it was obviously more than that for me as well and you almost want to look around and blame somebody, but you can't. Like like you said, how would they have known that, you know, a lot of them just said Louise needs to be more organised or um, she lacks the organisation to, to draw diagrams and things. Um, and and so it was all it's always a case. And and I'm sure it's the same for lots of us and and for you as well, Laura, that it's always a case of just do better just just concentrate more just try harder and so you constantly have this theme running through your mind of I'm not good enough I'm not good enough I'm not good enough um whether you know it or not um it's potentially there if if that's the message you've had from from very young um and it it is it is, it is sad, isn't it? It's a it's a little bit like a grief, and and I've said a couple of things when I've been on the phone to my mum, or um, and she'll say, well, you know, that's in, that's in the past now. Let's move on, and I and I agree to, in in regards to moving on, but I also think there is an element of just processing it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Processing it and accepting it for what it is, and because you're applying it now, aren't you? You're you're looking yeah. back you're applying it to all those circumstances from yeah. when you were younger to those experiences in the classroom where you weren't organized or whatever you're kind of forgiving yourself now going yeah. back you're forgiving that Louise the child um for the way that she made yeah. herself feel at the time um and telling her that it's okay you know that we can let go of that now yeah and I I think I've probably got more things to forgive as an adult as a child to be honest the amount of things I've just screwed up and you know haven't completed and and the impulsive behaviors and things um but you're right it's about reaching that level of forgiveness because if you've got that thread running through your your subconscious then it does it really doesn't help your mental health yeah. And then enter the comorbid conditions you get, like depression, anxiety, ta-da, you know, guaranteed act. Um, And so um, we've both, I think we've both kind of summarised a little bit, haven't we, about how we've gotten to this point. But something we, you and I spoke about in quite a lot of depth um, is that panorama. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah to that that is the hot potato of the week isn't it I keep every time I think about it I get cross and then I have to think and stop thinking about what am I going to do what are you going to do about it Louise what are you going to do and there isn't much I can do I felt like that um I had I was assessed privately by one of the companies that was on that program ADHD 360 that wasn't my experience um and I felt that it massively invalidates lots of people's diagnoses or people who are due to have an assessment. Um, it doesn't fill them with confidence, does oh, it? That panorama. But, you know, Laura, I don't know if I'm going completely off topic here, or if I'm just trying to look for problems that aren't there. But and I know we touched on this the other day. It feels like another it just feels like another kind of swipe at women. Mm. does that make sense it feels like whether I don't whether it's at a conscious level or not I think it's hard to tell but it's we can all agree it's mostly women who are coming for diagnosis now or assessment and potential in the past few years there's been an 
you know, an influx of yeah. women kind of identifying yeah. with the, the traits of ADHD. Um, I think there's undertones of, um, and I and I sense it from some people or some articles I might read. These and and I I may have been guilty of it myself at some point as well. These undertones of you just making excuses. You just making excuses because you can't do that. You can't do this. Are you struggling with that? Are you struggling with the other? And as women, I feel collectively not everybody and 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 it's not always men a lot of the time it's those women putting pressure on as women right is that is that um kind of uh societal pressure of these gender type like stereotypes that we have so we're talking in terms of executive function aren't we so um maintaining house yes uh, 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 <laughs> i mean John and I are fairly equal in the house. I don't know about you and Peter, but we tend to have the chores that we do. So he does the bins on a Monday night. Um, that's it. No, he doesn't. <laughs> no, he does. He does. You know, he does his share of the the washing, the ironing. Um, I don't think I've ever seen him clean a bathroom. So I would have to draw the line there. It's always me that cleans the bathrooms. Um, but we're, we're talking in terms of those, um, you know, being able to perform executive f- functioning, um, you know, carry out the tasks and use the skills that you've got to be able to maintain your household, make sure there's food in the fridge, prepare a meal, sort the packed lunches for the children. Yeah. Um, it's a favourite of yours, I know. <laughs> oh, the bat lunches, yeah, I am. Don't you? What it is, it's as if I've got a phobia of the bat lunches. We should start a com- Oh, let's start a company that makes packed lunches and just delivers them to the house yeah. in the morning. There we go. That's a really good idea. You can use that bus that you're going to buy off eBay to do it. That'll be tonight's hyperfix. We'll be nice <laughs> to I was thinking about this packed lunches thing, and I'm sure that could be a side hustle. <laughs> It could be like, Gusto, but, uh, like Gusto, but for kids, packed lunches. Oh, oh. I'm on fire today. I'm on fire. And that's alongside the one that she had about um, the mobile grooming stroke hair salon. <laughs> you get your dog groomed and you get yourself groomed at the same time. <laughs> I think still think that's a really good business idea. I'm going to have to pitch that to somebody. Um, Sea and Dragons Den. Oh, you don't like that one? Well, what about this one? Because I'll say that. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I've got more. I've got more. I've got something else back here I can think of. Um, the executive functioning and like, are you just talking about chores and it being equal um, with you and John typically? Um, I I find it really boring. I find it really really boring doing the house I find it really boring there are times when I feel a little bit like um Ma Larkin you know from the Darling Birds of May did you ever watch the original series I'm far too young for that like, she was just that's the kind of mother far too young for that <laughs> just Stop it. um just not 40 just this amazing you know motherly in the kitchen um she always looked like she was ready to have sex with her husband as well you know just this like perfect female and which is great and if that's your bag and that's <laughs> yeah if that's what gives that, you the dopamine if that what makes you happy then that's you know that's absolutely great perfect however it's not for me and it's not for you no 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 it isn't and but equally I think this is the point I've got to where work wasn't for me either like, nothing was for me um, I, I love looking after my family and I, f- I do get a sense of satisfaction but I just find it more and more of a struggle um, and then so it stops becoming something that I enjoy to do enjoy doing and so and it feels forced kind of you're really whatever you do do you feel as if you have to force yourself to do it against your will yeah and it's almost a bit like um it's like a magnetic force field, but when it does the opposite, you know, you try and put the two magnets together and they don't such hard work. They don't quite match. That you just there's something about it that physically I think they refer to it actually as ADHD paralysis. Like you just feel overwhelmed by everything that you should be doing or that your mind is telling you that you need to do and you just you yeah. just can't do it. Yeah. What 
But what I find interesting is um, because it is women, it seems to be, I think the, the statistics are showing, aren't they, that it's it's mostly women coming for diagnosis later on in life because of those reasons that you've just mentioned about, you know, no real research being done and not really being recognised in women. Um, and so it's becoming more recognisable and it's, and for lots of women, it probably is becoming a light bulb moment for them. And it felt like that Panorama programme just... Undermined it all. Undermined it all. You said it in a much nicer way than I was going to say. Um, and overall, it was just... The opening credits or the opening reels, I don't know the correct term for it, had the um, the psychologist assessor doing her hair. Yeah. Um, I don't Except know if you know. Laid back as if she didn't care. Laid back, doing, putting her hair up. She was on a video call, wasn't she? she it was a video assessment and she's there doing her hair. And I think it was very subtle, but it almost immediately undermined her. Would, yeah. It just makes me think, would they have... Would would it have had the same impact if it was a man running his hands through his hair? Mm. You know, I, I don't think it would. I don't know. It just felt like it was part of a message to send out to invalidate and discredit people. But overall, it's it's women just by the very nature of what they're talking about. Yeah. Because it's ADHD. It's it's people going to private clinics, um, and I don't know what the the statistics are for the private clinics, but. If they're, you know, if they're in keeping with the other statistics we've been talking about, then it probably is mostly women. Yeah. And it's just another, it's just, it just felt like another kick in the tummy, you know, another kind of, oh, just get on with your housework, you know, just, just you can't do your housework. Just, you know, all of those things that as women are kind of put on us to and we're kind of dismissed and it happens in lots of areas of, of well-being of our lives of our health care and you'll certainly see it in like women's health um specifically you know when you're going through the kind of maternity process and um and the same goes for for conditions that are um mostly assigned to women such as peri um, perinatal mental health problems I appreciate men have them also, but if we were to talk about it from the female perspective, there's very little research. Mm. Um, and it's, it's again, it's that bias that, that comes in. And so I felt like the programme really, overall, discredited women, but, but women with ADHD. Yeah. Maybe that was quite, um, I think it was quite subtle. Maybe I felt it more acutely, I don't know, being being all of those things um but I took it quite I didn't take it personally but just makes me quite cross I think it was um I'm no expert but don't people use the term lazy journalism I don't know if I would and that NHS doctor it was just so interestingly actually you're about to touch on that um NHS doctor he's actually written a state he's actually had an interview since okay um with oh I'll just tell you just now I'm pulling it up on my LinkedIn um I reshared it on there because I thought it was very interesting that he has kind of spoken out about it now um and actually he's a very balanced um so his name is Dr Mike Smith and he was the consultant psychiatrist that was on the documentary um, it was in The Guardian online and the title of the piece is called Is It Really Too Easy to Be Diagnosed with ADHD? Um, he goes on to say that he's the NHS psychiatrist that was on the Panorama documentary. Um, the episode revealed the fallout of decades of underdiagnosis and NHS services that are no longer fit for purpose. It's interesting that that's the heading because Actually, that's not been a lot of ADHD people's take on that programme. I didn't get that. Did you? Did I miss I something? I didn't get that. But I think if we, you know, if if you look further into the the documentary, I can kind of see his point. Um, he 
he, he goes on to talk about um, how this Panorama documentary has provoked, provoked a heated debate. Um, one camp is relieved that the concerns about the quality of care for those with ADHD are finally being exposed. Um, in the face of the logged, jammed NHS waiting list, many patients who are looking for answers to their struggles simply have no other option than to pay out of their own pocket to see a private mm -hmm. provider. And clearly some people are being let down. So I think it's really important yeah. to highlight that, um, you know, while that's one person's experience of one practitioner within a private company, yeah. um, that's not necessarily everybody's experience. Like one bad person doesn't make up for a bad company because actually these companies have been created to bridge the gap for people who are waiting yeah. to be assessed. Now, while that's going to make the practitioners and the company money, the majority of these professionals working within the private companies also work in the NHS. You know, yes, yeah. A lot of them yeah. are you know, a psychiatrist, psychologist, ADHD specialist, nurses, um, you know, they, they're part-time private, part-time mm. NHS. Um, so I suppose a part of it is, um, regardless, the NHS can also not do thorough assessments it mm. doesn't mean one is better than the other agreed it's just yeah. that you're paying to get ahead of the waiting list you're not paying for a more expert assessment because it's the same people essentially that are providing it yeah um he goes on to talk about um there is obviously a need to deal with the way the market is currently organized to improve things but there is also a huge emotional fallout from the show which speaks to the polarizing nature of the debate around adhd its validity the stigma and how to effectively manage this very real condition which has undergone a sudden awareness in recent years um so i think a lot of people have obviously written to the bbc or to this doctor to sort of complain about how it's made them feel um in fact, John and I had a conversation. John is my husband, just for any of you viewers, listeners that don't know that. Um, John and I often have debates about things specifically around feminism, um, religion, um, racism. He very much likes to play devil's advocate because I think he enjoys winding me up because I take these things very seriously. Um, we have very diff different political views about things. Um, because I'm the empath and I, when I watch the news, it can send me into like a world of deep, dark depression because I just think mm -hmm. there's no hope. All this is going on in the world and it's all bad, bad, bad. And humanity is, you know, you just have no faith in it. Um, after the programme, John said to me, well, what does that make you think about your diagnosis? To me, that was him questioning it mm -hmm. but actually the diagnosis for me has been the catalyst for major life transition it feels as if it fits it answers a lot of why I have been and why I am the way that I am um, the strategies that I've put in place using the ADHD coaching and um, the medication that I'm taking they are all massively helping my life and therefore his life and the children's life um, so I just don't see that there's any debate about my diagnosis. I used also a private company, as you know, Louise. Um, it wasn't one of the ones that was investigated by this Panorama documentary. Um, I took the report to the local psychiatrist here in the Channel Islands and she was very impressed by the thorough assessment that I had had yeah. um, to the point where she's now started recommending people on the waiting list that they use this particular company, which is fantastic. However, my fear is that now a lot of the people on those waiting lists are not going to use the private companies either because of the way they've been portrayed by the BBC, which is unfortunate. And I know it's not the NHS's fault because the NHS is dramatically underfunded and actually wholeheartedly it's the Tory government that's the problem. Um, that is a whole different podcast episode. Um, anyway, I'm very pleased though that this um, psychiatrist has, has spoken out. Um, he, he goes on to um, highlight that actually, you know, the NHS is underfunded and the amount of funding that goes towards kind of ADHD assessments and treatment 
is massively underfunded because they couldn't have anticipated the surge in people that were looking for an assessment. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, it's it's very interesting, and I hope that it brings forward positive change. I hope that it's a catalyst for many yeah. debates going forward. Lots of people have lots of opinions about it, but it brings, regardless of the intention or the way that the documentary was brought about. I think it really brings the topic of ADHD to the forefront and that in itself can be a really good thing. Um, I am very secure in my diagnosis, as I know that you are with yours. Um, you know, you started the medication the other day and you're already feeling the benefits of that, yeah. which yeah. is fantastic. Um, I am as well yeah. because, because, because of my kind of professional background, um, I'm... I could, I could almost put a professional eye on the assessment I was having, if that makes sense. Yeah. The kind of working knowledge of it. So um, I knew what she was asking. I knew why she was asking things. And I was as honest as I could be, as in there were some things she would say, do you struggle with something? And I'd say, no, not really. I think it was the loud voice. Do you have, do you feel like your voice goes quite loud? And I don't think that um, of myself, particularly, unless I'm screaming at the kids. Unless it's required. Yeah, so I didn't sit there and say, yes, I've got everything. Um, and it was very kind of, the assessment was very led by, by me, really. She allowed me to kind of, which, which I would expect, allowed me to kind of tell yeah. my story. And then she was able to assess bits that she was picking out from there. Examples maybe that you were using, she was able to kind of... Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. if you look at, break it down. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of, that active listening, the um, just probing questions, trying to um, gently touch on things that would be relevant to the assessment. Um and and I've since seen the the um, report that she's written as well, and and I think it's very thorough. I think it's it's um, I think it makes sense yeah. for me. I think my worry was that I would start questioning, and not just that I would question it, but that those around me would question it, yeah. like John did for you. Um, but thankfully, that doesn't seem to have really happened. I haven't told that many people anyway. I, I don't really oh, see no, no, no. <laughs> um, I'm not going around with a sandwich board on saying I have ADHD. Um, I, I mean, essentially, that's what I did. I know, I know. And I think... I felt so proud and so motivated and empowered. And I really felt as if I could celebrate. I wanted to make a cake. I wanted to have a coming out. I've got ADHD party. Like, I feel as if this just um for all you people that know me, this is why I have been the way that I have been. That emotionally yeah. dysregulated, yeah. crying yeah. at everything, um, can't take criticism because of you know, actually that's rejection sensitive dysphoria. I'm emotionally dysregulated. Um I've yeah. had these hyper focuses and where you think I've been really flaky and can't stick to things it's just because my attention is shifting from thing to thing, to thing, to thing. I know absolutely same for me and um and I I haven't it hasn't made me question my diagnosis in fact um as time goes on just I mean it's only been a week it's been a week since I got my positive diagnosis of ADHD so I'm like I'm like an embryo of an ADHD <laughs> awareness person that made no sense um but the more time goes on the more I'm learning mm. I, and actually and listening to other people talk about their ADHD when I hear other people talk about their ADHD I think oh my god I'm so much worse than that in like an embarrassed way because of some of the things I've done and and I still carry a lot of shame around my my behaviors and I think that's um, probably why, uh, and being slightly different personalities, probably why I'm not as open. Mm. Um, I wouldn't be closed off from it, but I don't feel like I could properly trust many people. My my masking hasn't fully left me yet, I don't think. Um, so it hasn't, thankfully, hasn't made me question my diagnosis, and it hasn't made you. 
And that's important because I think you put in one of your social media posts that, you know, you're valid, you, your experience yeah. is valid. And, you know, I mean, this, a label is amazing and it gives you some reasons, but actually at the core of it is recognising how to react to yourself, how to yeah. how to carry out those self-care um, tasks and recognise things in yourself and get the right help that's what what it's about it's isn't it it's not about a beacon of of identity because it's about a trend that still and i'm still me um who are you who am i well that's the topic of next week's podcast we've got an extra three hours um but, no, but it, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's important to have your feelings validated. It's important for you to come to grips with your diagnosis and just slowly work through it, learn what it's like to take the mask off if you can. But I don't think it's an easy thing to do. It's a habit of a lifetime. It's very easy to just slip back into whoever you need to be at that time. Um, it is very tiring pretending to be someone you're not. It's exhausting but actually painful as well yeah really I, painful emotionally I'm glad that we've um gravitated towards each other and i'm glad that we have each other to support each other's journeys i think that's really important business ventures yeah exactly <laughs> any kind of ventures adventures traveling adventures whatever another thing i think that's positive about um us being able to do this podcast or just be open is to just to say to people that look we're people who you would deem as in control as safe people who will help you and that is still the case but I think it's important to recognize that we're not superhuman being a health professional does not make you superhuman we have our struggles and we're human and we do shameful things and well I do and um i think sometimes i think almost always just breaking down those barriers is really really helpful for people understood a lot of people have said to me um gosh i just don't know how you do it all um because when i'm experiencing one of those kind of hyper fixations i have so much energy that you know i can yeah do so much I can you know well recently not to you know promote myself but um I one weekend just felt like writing a children's storybook so I wrote three illustrated one and then the next day I wrote another but then I absolutely burnt myself out because I was staying awake so late at night I had so many ideas floating around in my head and it's almost this kind of sense of urgency that you get you need to get it down on paper and you need to write it down and you need to just do it because if you don't you know that you're going to lose interest in it and all this, you know, stuff in your head is never going it's, to come out. It's always a sense of urgency, isn't it, Laura? I don't know. Yeah. So I, I feel that as well. Even if it's, I want to make a change in my life, I need to do it now because exactly. wait, I'm not going to, why would I wait? I need to do it now, 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 now. Yeah. And, um, and you're right, that can be really, really exhausting. But you've written a beautiful, well, more than one book. <laughs> Um, and almost published. Yes, about well, about to be. I'm guessing it's probably quite a slow process. But um, if you want to donate to the GoFundMe that I've got started, I'll pop the link in the bottom of the podcast. Um, also, if you want to contact Louise or I, will also pop our um, email addresses um, when the podcast goes live, um, and you can contact us. Let us know if there's anything that you specifically want us to chat about, or um, you know, we can we can chat about it. We can get people on and chat to them um, yeah. about their experiences of being a late diagnosed ADHD female. We'll be really interested to hear from lots of people. Um, so please do get yeah. go ahead and contact us. Um, and I think even even if it's other other things relating to being a female and and having any mental health problems or, or issues like that, that you'd like some advice or you can help with parenting, maybe not parenting. <laughs> um, I just think they open really lovely conversations, don't they? And really helpful. 
conversations um, for us all to learn. Absolutely. How to be it's, that perfect parent. It's been lovely chatting to you, Louise. And you. And um, next week. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of our new podcast by the ADHDivas, Laura and Louise. If you want to get in touch, please just email the link down below. Um, and we'll see you same time, same place next week. Thursday, the 25th of May. Bye.